My name is Roger Clark, and I'm your host on this episode of Fourscore and Seven Project. You may ask, why do we call it that? Well, Fourscore and Seven refers to Abraham Lincoln's favorite and famous address in Gettysburg, 87 years. We believe that anything worthwhile takes a long time to achieve with a lot of hard work. The Fourscore and Seven Project is a production of New Majority Foundation. New Majority Foundation is a public charity that is dedicated to the enhancement and improvement of American representative democracy. How do we do that? Well, we educate and we search for ways to inform the people on the critical and profound issues of our time. We're about education. And we want to learn about these issues, pros and cons, so that we can help the American people make informed decisions on their own and reach common sense solutions that respect the rights and dignities of all Americans. Today, our issue is crisis in the faith of American democracy. And we're very fortunate to have as our guest, Jessica Patterson. Thank you, Jessica. Happy to be here, Roger. Well, let me tell a little bit about you. Uh, I think many of our listeners and watchers know who you are. Uh, you're well known on the national stage as well, but not intending to embarrass you too much. Uh, you are the chair of the California Republican Party. Uh, you are the first elected uh, Latina to hold that position. Uh, and you were just reelected uh, to a third term, which is very rare. And on top of that, uh, you were reelected with a resounding 66, 67, 68 percent of the vote, I believe, which is the highest margin you've ever had. Uh, you're doing a wonderful job. Thank you, Roger. And that's reflected in the support that you have in the party. Now, during your leadership, uh, California has switched five congressional seats from blue to red which kind of gets overlooked in the wash of the national political debate, but this is California. That's a big change. Now that five seat switch just happens to be the margin of majority in the House of Representatives and hence Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, probably owes you a tremendous amount of thanks. Well, job, job well done. Thank you, Roger. All right. So let me, let me just start out the, uh, the, the conversation. A uh, recent Gallup poll uh, indicated that 55, 56% of Republicans have lost confidence and faith in the American electoral process. 36% of independents have lost faith, and 25 or 26% of Democrats have lost faith. So you roll that all together, it seems like maybe one out of three, maybe four out of 10 people no longer have faith in, in the election process. Um, your thoughts, uh, how, what, what can we do about that? It's certainly a challenge. And it's depending on when you take a poll, um, which party feels more affected by it, right? We think back to the 2016 election cycle where you know people like uh, Secretary Clinton, uh, uh, Stacey Abrams, um, the conversations about quote unquote election fraud were mostly coming from the Democrat side, right? We heard about Russian hoax and interference 
And so it really has affected not just Republicans. You know, you hear about it right now a lot in the mainstream uh, media following the 2020 election cycle because of uh, President Trump's comments about the election. So you see that on both sides, and it just depends on who won or lost. Um, one of the challenge that we have is to make sure that people do have confidence in their vote, right? So what are, the, some, what are some of the things that we do to work on that? And that's election integrity. If you say in one breath that your vote doesn't count or that the, the, it's fixed and it's baked in and it's already decided, and in the same breath you're asking someone to turn out the vote, how much confidence are they going to have that that ballot is going to mean something? And so we worked really hard here in California to pursue election integrity. And it didn't start post-2020 election cycle. In fact, we were very engaged in election integrity in the 2020 cycle, my first cycle as chair. Um, we had about 60% of all ballots being watched by lawyers, staff, and volunteers. That was mostly focused in our targeted congressional seats. In 2020, we had four targeted seats. We played in all four of those seats. We won all four of those seats. Um, it was the first time we had flipped from blue to red since 1994. A little bit of context, I was 14 years old the last time we had done that. But it was critical. It was critical to make sure that we had people on the ground. Do I have faith and confidence in our elections here in California? I absolutely uh, do. But it's the Ronald Reagan old saying, right? Trust, but verify. We went from the 2020 election cycle to the 22 cycle from 60% of ballots being watched to about 93% of ballots being watched. We had a statewide election integrity chair from 2021 when we did the recall. We recruited volunteers from all over our state. We had an election integrity chair in every single county. We had a lawyer assigned to every single county. We went and trained over 2,100 poll watchers, and then we also helped people get jobs within the county clerk's offices all around our state, so we had people on the inside. And you know, one of the best parts of my job, win or lose, is to call people up following the election and thank them for whether it was being a, a major donor or one of our stellar volunteers. Some of my best conversations came from our election integrity volunteers. You know, each one of them really got into it because they had planned on, you know, uncovering some massive uh, irregularities. And, um, you know, what all of them said was, we developed a relationship with our county clerk. And when we had a question, they gave us an answer. And if something looked funny to us and they didn't have an answer, they went and found an answer. Now, sometimes there was incompetence, of course, but it didn't seem like anything nefarious was happening. And um, so their confidence within the election system was restored. But again, I can't let them walk away from the work that they're doing because when you win a seat like we did with Mike Garcia in 2020 by 333 votes, or uh, now Congressman John Duarte, who won by 565 votes in 2022. We even had one race down in Palm Springs on the assembly side, now Assemblyman Greg Wallace. He won by 85 votes. Trust me, 
if there are places where just a few votes uh, being pushed in or pushed out would make a difference, it's in those close races. And so when you have wins on those and you can say, I have confidence in these elections, it makes a difference. But we need people on the ground to make sure that nothing funny happens. As soon as we take our foot off the gas, that's when fun business will happen. Well, that's very encouraging, and uh, you're restoring a lot of my faith. Uh, there is a lot of chatter, you know, in the national media in particular that uh, is very confusing on, on this particular subject. Well, one thing I learned uh, early on as a youngster is uh, when you get into a discussion, it's really helpful to have you, the, the terms of your discussion defined. So when we say voter integrity, to me that's a defined term, which is probably narrower than the bigger uh, media discourse, uh, or you know, th 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 l l let me come back to you. And uh, what, what is your definition when you say voter integrity? What what does that encompass? Yeah, I think that as Republicans, we hold our ballots sacred, and so having the confidence that that vote is being counted and it's being counted properly, and that there aren't any improper votes being counted. On the Republican side, what I say is that we believe every legal vote should be counted. And um, that is very uh, definite. Well, can you, can you take us um, uh, you know, th through the process? Um, uh, everybody in, every voter in, in, in California uh, receives a, a ballot by, by mail now, I believe. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, but I think it's every registered voter. Uh, and then that uh, ballot is, is, is physically filled out and can either be mailed in or taken to uh, a polling station or someone could take it on the day of the election and actually cast it uh, as well. Can you take us through that process uh, from the beginning to end? Uh, because I think there's a lot of people out there that are confused about how their vote gets counted. Uh, they're worried about you know, voting early because something might happen in the ether to the ballot and then it's never lost and the vote is never counted. And hence, I think that was part of your reference to people. Why should I vote? Because it's not going to be counted. Can, can you walk us through that process? Yeah. And I think we need to start with the evolution of what has taken place here in California, right? We used to have, uh, you could request an absentee ballot. And when you requested that absentee ballot, either you or a family member could return that ballot, um, but no one else. Then in 2016, despite Republican objections, the California Democrats vote, uh, passed a, a legislative bill that allowed for ballot harvesting, which essentially allowed any individual to collect ballots and return them. Uh, you and I talked about this a little bit earlier, but as Republicans, we really hold our ballots sacred. And so, you know, if a Boy Scout showed up at my house asking for my ballot, I would tell the kid to beat it, right? <laughs> and so... It wouldn't make any difference, he said, as part of my Eagle Scout project <laughs> on collecting ballots. And then Not you, you kidding, get out of here. <laughs> so it was really hard for Republicans, particularly in that 2018 election cycle where ballot harvesting was first legal, for us to get our head around it and really put together a process and a strategy where we could be successful like Democrats were. Well, there's a big switch in Orange County that year, wasn't there? Uh, where, where a lot of the Republican, every Republican seat switched to the Democrats in Orange County? Every they, single seat, yes. And it was it was a challenge. We, we lost half of our Republican delegation statewide. We went from 14 seats to seven seats in the uh, congressional delegation. It was a tough year on California Republicans. It was a dark time. When I ran for chair in February of 2019, this is actually something that I, I ran on. 
I believe that California Democrats have legalized and normalized what would be considered fraud in any other part of our country, most parts of our country. But until we get more Republicans elected to go change those laws, we have to play on the same field as they do with the same rules that they did. So we put together our ballot harvesting operations throughout the state. And um, we did a lot of active and passive ballot harvesting. So on the active side, we have our neighborhood team leader program. And generally speaking, it's your neighborhood. But you're not showing up five weeks before an election asking someone for their ballot. We have people that are developing relationships and going throughout the year and a half before an election and making sure that they get to know their neighbors, talk to them about the issues that are important. It doesn't always have to be your neighborhood though. It could be your book club, it could be your men's club, it could be your golf club. Um, wherever you get together with people and you talk about the issues that are facing Californians and what's going on in their real lives, that's where you build trust. And then you have in, you know, ballot parties at your house, people can fill things out, you can give information. Organizations like the New Majority Foundation that focus on education can talk about the issues in a really intelligent way. And this is the way that we get out the vote. Now, in, during COVID time, we had a uh, executive order first that went to, made it legal for all individuals to receive a mail ballot. Uh, that are registered in California. And, um, you know, this was going to be a huge concern for people. How successful would we be with all of these ballots out there, um, getting those ballots in, making sure that they were filled out correctly? Because so many people for decades had showed up at their polling location, and now we have these uh, mail centers, or, or excuse me, voting centers throughout the state. How is this going to affect us? Um, and so that was one of the real focuses for our neighborhood team leader program. But it was also a focus on our passive side of collecting ballots. You know, we had seen, I had worked with uh, Senate Republican leader Shannon Grove, and um, you know, there is no one that worked harder in developing programs to make sure that our believers throughout the state were turning out to vote. We would work with the churches. Um, we put ballot boxes in these churches. This is a place where you feel comfortable. This is a place where you know that the people that you're talking to, their values align with you. Uh, we got actually so good at this. You know, we'd put these ballot boxes inside uh, churches, inside gun shops. Uh, we had them at every Republican headquarters. Um, my, I tell this, this one anecdote of my husband uh, taking our daughters in to get a, a speakeasy haircut uh, during COVID times. And uh, they had to go in through the back door. And as they were checking in, there was a sign that said, good morning to everyone except Gavin Newsom. And he came home, he was like, babe, this is a perfect place for one of your ballot boxes. But business friendly individuals, we got so good at it that the Democrats actually came after us. Uh, then Secretary of State Alex Badia and our Attorney General, then Attorney General Javier Becerra, both came after us. Uh, they, take, they took us to court and we actually ended up winning. They weren't mad because we were doing something nefarious or illegal. 
They knew we were following their own rules, but we were getting better at it than they were. And so the ballot harvesting side of it as well has to be a component of what we're doing until we can change those rules. No, go ahead. Well, you you mentioned something that there was a phrase, if I quote this correctly, uh, what the process in California would be considered, I think you said legalized fraud. In, the re- in much of the rest of the country. Uh, and I wanted to come back to that, that phrase because it, it kind of, I think this may be part of the perception nationally is that California, uh, what's happened here with, with, with the ballot harvesting um, is that we are out of step with uh, many of the other states in, in, in the nation. So your reference to legalized fraud, if it was, let's say if it was in, um, pick, pick, pick a, whatever state you want to pick, mm-hmm. uh, can you explain why it would be considered fraud in, say, one of these other states that you had a reference to? For the same reason it would have been fraud in California 10 years ago. Um, Before, you had to request an absentee ballot, and either you or someone within your family would have to return that ballot. Now, anyone can pick up that ballot. So in many states, it is illegal for someone else to pick up your ballot, and that's why. Well, there was, um, if my memory serves right, uh, it may have been the 2018 election. Uh, there was a, I believe it was the ninth congressional district in North Carolina, uh, where the uh, election had to be held a second time because someone was collecting ballots, doing a ballot harvesting, but actually was changing the vote, and it was a close election. Uh, of maybe two or three hundred difference in the election. I think, was that Dan Bishop special that year? I believe it was, yes, yes, uh, yes. Vaguely remember that. So, uh, uh, but in California, we have a lot of safeguards to prevent that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And like I said, you know, when we have 93.5% of our ballots being watched by Republican lawyers, staff, and volunteers, I have confidence in those elections. We couldn't win a race by 85 votes in Palm Springs if we didn't have a fair system in place. So if we have a a situation where uh, someone uh, fills out their ballot uh, and then they put it in an envelope and they sign the outside of the envelope, Mm -hmm. I believe, uh, and then when that ballot is received uh, with with the people who are reviewing it have to compare the signature on the the outside of the envelope to the signature that's uh, on file, um, to make sure that it's the same signature, basically. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and in fact, this is something that California Republicans have gotten really good about. Um, there's another term that you and I are gonna use, and it's called curing of ballots. And so when we have these really close races, we can go back and see how many Republican votes were rejected. Usually it is for signature reasons. Sometimes they forget to sign the outside of the envelope. Uh, Sometimes the signature, and you know, many of us, our signature changes over the years. And if you've been registered to vote and haven't filled out a voter registration card in some time, um, that signature will change over the years. Well, if anybody's like me, I can't even read my own signature (laughs) anymore. Probably half the doctors in California. But, you know, I first started doing um, ballot curing um, back when Catherine Baker was running for the assembly in 2014 and 2016. We did it with uh, Assemblyman uh, Tom Lackey. These are places where it made a huge difference in those races. I truly believe that as a party, we really perfected it in the 2020 cycle with Congressman Mike Garcia's race. 
333 ballots. And, you know, we had to cure every, and we did, we had a 100% cure rate for the Republican ballots in that district in 2020. And what it is, is volunteers uh, getting an affidavit signed by the individual saying that they did intend to vote, that was their signature, and um, getting that back to the county clerk's office to cure the ballot. The ballot would then be reopened, or would be opened and counted towards that election. This past year, Going into Thanksgiving weekend, you know, we had teams on the ground with with, uh, with Greg Wallace's assembly race or David Shepard's uh, Senate race. We had up in uh, Congressman John Dewarty's district where he won by 565 votes. We had teams, uh, Josh Hoover, who was running for, for, for the assembly and switched uh, that seat from blue to red against a 10-year incumbent on the assembly side. We had teams all over. And in that last Thanksgiving weekend, um, one of our closest races hadn't been called yet. We had about 500 ballots that were our voters that had not been cured yet. And the Assembly Caucus came down under the leadership of Assemblyman James Gallagher, and they had teams on the ground. And in that weekend alone, they cured 300 ballots. So 300 ballots when your margin of victory was 85 you can look every single one of those volunteers in the eye and say, you made a difference. <laughs> you, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because uh, when I was a young lawyer, one of the very first cases- You're I, still a young I, lawyer, Roger. Oh, oh, well, thank you very much. You made my day. <laughs> thank you, Jessica. I, uh, the, the judge would say to the panel, give a patriotic speech and would say that uh, there's only three times when, when a citizen can serve uh, the, the country. One is when you serve in the military. Two is when you vote in an election, and, and three is when you serve on a jury. And he said, of all those three, uh, it's the service on the jury uh, that has the most profound impact on your sense of democracy because you can see your vote in action. So you're, you're looking at your, uh, you know, whether there's six or nine or 12 on the jury, you're, you're deliberating and everybody sees their vote. And so you can see the direct impact. But I'm laughing because now when we talk about 85 vote elections and congressional districts, counts. the vote counts. So, Absolutely. So, so now maybe it should be the close elections more than the jury deliberation and voting. Yeah, and I will say when it comes to process, because you and I have been talking about process a lot and when to vote. I have, oh, I have been a permanent absentee ballot voter before I was uh, before we had mail-in voting. And so I never knew where, I, because I worked in campaigns for the last 20 years, I never knew where I was gonna be on election day. So this was a safeguard for me to make sure that my vote got in. And let me tell you, I have the best polling location in the country at the Ronald Reagan Library. So if I could get to the library on election day, I was there. Um, I get to walk right past the Gipper before I cast my vote. But what's important is when you have the confidence in your vote, as soon as you know how you're going to vote, as soon as you receive your ballot, in my opinion, is to get it back in. And the reason for that is more economic than altruistic. And the reason for it is because we can save money on contacting you and moving on to a less likely voter. So as long as you hold on to your ballot, I am going to be spending money on mail. I am going to be spent resources, whether it's volunteer hours on getting your vote in for, via phones, precinct walking. As soon as you send that ballot in, A, I will stop bothering you. You will no longer get phone calls and door knocks <laughs> and mail pieces from me. 
But the resources that would have been spent on you, someone who is very likely to vote, and that's why we need to make sure that your vote is getting in, and I can spend those resources on turning someone else out in those close races, it makes a huge difference. So so a part of the curing process then, if, if, if a ballot is rejected, then the envelope stays with the ballot. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you can do The a, signature's on the outside, uh, On correct. the outside. Mm -hmm. But if it's accepted, then the envelope and the ballot are separated. Correct. And then the ballot has no way to trace it back to the voter Correct. At, at that point. That's why you have a secret ballot, right. which is paramount in our system. Sure, sure. And uh, well, let, let, me, let me ask you this. Um, in, in terms of voter ID, uh, huge, huge issue nationally. Uh, I, I think that most countries in the world um, require, not all, but most require some type of uh, positive identification w w when they vote. Uh, many states, the United States, do, but 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 California does not. Um, and there's a lot of and the response, of course, is that well, requiring some type of voter identification is uh, some type of voter suppression. Uh, what do you, what do you have to say about that debate? Yeah, I think it's insulting, right? Because generally speaking, they're talking to people of color when they are saying those types of things. And I can tell you as a person of color, it was never confusing to me how I went and got an ID or a license. Um, and it's just, I think it's insulting. Well, you, you look at uh, you know, you know, the vote process, <clears throat> because what, what would be the motive? Um, what is the, what we're really talking about a Democrat-Republican divide, I think, are we not? Uh, Republicans, and I think many, probably most Democrats as well, uh, uh, I think most polling data to the extent that we can trust you know, the polls, suggest that there's uh, 70, 80 percent of, of Americans are in favor of voter ID, which would have to include a lot of Democrats and yeah. independents as well. But yet there's this strong uh, influential group that say voter suppression it's, it's, or it's racist is the argument. And, and, and it has a lot of uh, traction in, in, in a lot of places. Um, why is that? Well, I think when you see this, it's mostly elected officials, right? And I think that what you've seen here in California, that it's very rare that we see moderate Democrats be elected to the legislature. And even if they are, quote unquote, moderate Democrats, they're really situational or issue moderate Democrats. So it's not like they're across the board somewhere left of center. And you get the extremes on, and, and particularly with this, I, I call the progressive caucus, they call them, I call them the regressive caucus because I think their policies have actually regressed many things here in California. Right. And so I think if we wanted to get something passed like voter ID, um, and I haven't seen the polls here specifically in California, it would most definitely have to go through ballot initiative. Um, versus the legislature, because you get those extremes up in Sacramento. And, and we see it on the policy side with our statewide ballot initiatives, right? Mm -hmm. So in the last two cycles, uh, the California Republican Party has really played in this space. And we have done you know, $8.2 million on ballot initiatives in 2020, about $5 million. There was a lot less in uh, 2022. But California voters are actually with the California Republican Party's position um, about between 63% in 2020 and up to 67% in 
in 2022. Support voter ID. Not voter ID, I'm sorry, the ballot initiatives that were on the ballot. So this is good news for us. They're with us on the ideas. What we need to do is make sure that we have the right messengers in each one of these uh, districts to to bring that message, right? And we've seen the absolute disregard for the people's voice when it comes to the ideas, whether it's George Gascon in Los Angeles, who after no cash bail failing statewide and failing specifically in LA County, wanted to continue a policy of no cash bail in Los Angeles, right? right? And this is why we have to hold them accountable with these policies. So I think the ballot initiative would probably be the best route to go when it comes to something like voter ID. Um, I'd probably have to do um, some type of polling on it first to see if it was something that was viable here. Well, you know, as as you were talking, um, you know, this comes back to the faith and confidence, uh, you know, in the system. I I think that, Humans have a uh, natural instinct for when they're being fooled or when someone is trying to pull the wool over their eyes. And I think there's a lot of people out there that say, well, there must be a reason why there's such serious opposition to voter ID because uh, maybe people are against voter ID because they're trying to vote, sneak in illegal votes. And hence, putting aside the voter integrity in the accounting process, Uh, looking at just the suspicion that that raises may account for some of the loss of the faith in in the election process. Is that something that uh, you agree or disagree with? Yeah, I think that that could definitely. And I think probably the best example of, um, you know, showing how it looks in action was Georgia, right? They went and passed all of these laws that would create more confidence in their elections. And what did the Democrat Party say down there? This is voter suppression, right? Jim Crow 2.0, I think, was Joe Biden. Those were the exact words that they used. And then when we saw, so much so that the MLB pulled the all-star game, you know, which affected revenues going into uh, Atlanta and, and, and Georgia. And so then we saw what it looked like in practice. And voter participation was actually up. They had more days where they could vote. And so I think that it's our job and organizations like the New Majority Foundation that spends time on the education to point to those success stories and what we're seeing in action. Just because there are rules to how you vote doesn't mean there's going to be less participation. It actually means people will have more confidence in those votes and be more likely to vote. Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great point that, uh, and a wonderful thing about a federal system like we have, we have 50 test labs. Uh, and, and, you know, California is one. Plus our 50, U.S. territories. Plus the U.S. territories. Uh, so, so we have a lot of other places to, to look at and maybe part of the educational process which you just highlighted, is let's get the information about what's going on in these other areas which have different systems. Is the voting participation down or is it up or is it roughly roughly the same? Well, let let me ask you uh, about early voting. And uh, not not that I'm really much of a historian on this, but, uh, you know, this morning I was just looking at the history of early voting and it seems to have started, uh, I think it actually started with Florida, uh, sometime after the 2000, the, the, the famous or infamous 2000 election and the 
Chad boating controversy down there. Hanging Chad, simple Chad. <laughs> Hanging Chad. And I think it was 2002, 2003, somewhere in there, Florida started early boating, and then most other states followed. Now And then um, and now we have, I think some states allow early boating up to 42, 43, 44 days before Election Day. And let, let, let me draw back once again on my, my trial lawyer experience. Uh, anyone who's ever tried a lawsuit knows that uh, one of the most common instructions that the judge gives to the jury uh, every time the the, the the trial day begins or when they break for the day or for the lunch or whatever it is uh, do not draw any conclusions until all the evidence is in uh, you've got to listen to the very last witness you've got to look at the last document don't draw any conclusions prematurely wait until you get back uh, to the jury room so putting that background that I have, I just wanted to share that because that's my bias. So I'm saying now we've got voting that occurs uh, a month and a half in advance, uh, but yet we don't have all the evidence in. Uh, and I think in the uh, election uh, w with the Hunter Biden laptop controversy, which uh, is, is a whole other subject of conversation, maybe we can touch base about that today as well. But but here's something that uh, w was significantly a big issue. It was Poupaud at the time, supposedly, as, I mean, was a 51 uh, retired intelligence agent said it was all Russian uh, disinformation. Of course, now we know it's not. Uh, and so it never got out. But if it had gotten out, it could have had an impact, not because of Hunter, but because of his right. dad. Yeah. Um, but, but yet uh, th this information is coming out uh, sometime after the 42nd day prior to the election. Um, Thoughts on er, 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 early voting, um, good, bad, indifferent, uh, what do you think? So the number one indicator of how you are going to vote is what your party affiliation is. Um, certainly there's that group in the middle, uh, that you know probably 10%, that are persuadable. And I expect those individuals that are persuadable to hold on to their ballots longer. Generally speaking, people have made up their mind. Uh, they may not have all of the information that they made. You know, they, I need to figure out who I'm going to vote on these judges, right? I'm sure people give you a lot of calls about that too, yeah, Roger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So generally speaking, they know how they're going to vote. They know on the ballot initiatives what policies are important to them. And so they, it doesn't matter what's going to come out. That vote is not going to change. And so if you are one of those people that these are the values that you have, one candidate and this set of issues follow those values, get your ballot in early. There is no reason to hold on to that ballot. Now, on the other side, if you are part of that group of persuadables, you may want to wait longer. And maybe you haven't reached a decision. Generally speaking, your party affiliation is going to dictate the way that ballot is going to be filled out. And if you know what your values are, it doesn't matter what comes out. It's probably not going to change what your vote is. Interesting. So I, I think that um, coming back to the uh, 50 different uh, laboratories of democracy, uh, there's still a couple of states uh, that do not allow early voting. I think Alabama's one. I think Mississippi. I think New Hampshire. Connecticut, I think, although I think they just changed, uh, so the next cycle it, there will be early voting. Um, with, with those states that don't allow early voting, and, and, I, and I realize part of the argument is that without early voting, uh, you're suppressing the vote. Uh, and, and again, comparing the voter turnouts in those states compared to, say, those states that do have 
early voting. Do we do you know, are there any differences in terms of voter participation that we can identify? I haven't looked at it. So the short answer is I don't know the answer to it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but certainly you don't hear a lot of calls for voter suppression in those areas, right? right. That, that's, that's very true. Well, how, how is there a limit to how early is too early? Uh, we're right now, some states, are, like I said, in the 40 days before the election day, I mean, how early can we go before it really starts to shock our sensitivities yeah. any more than it does? I think that's a good question. You know, certainly there's timelines within uh, each state and sometimes counties on information that has to come in, filing for these particular races. You have to have primary races, and some of them are incredibly late, like Hawaii, right? It's just a couple months right before the general election. Um, so that's certainly um, something that I think is a buffer for us. But I think that if you get beyond that one month uh, to five weeks before, um, you are taking away because I don't think like necessarily we've seen debates that the candidates might have. Um, and then there may be something that happens that affects policy that is going on right now. And you know, whether it was uh, in 2008, um, you know, we had uh, Senator McCain who suspended his campaign because he wanted to help as a U.S. Senator with the financial crisis that was going on, right? Mm -hmm. So playing those types of, uh, of issues and, and having to lead um, as an elected official, I think definitely affects it. So I think if you go much further than that one month, five week period, before the election, I think you're doing a disservice to voters. So, if I if I gather, then you're, you're generally in favor of early voting, but there has to be some type of limit to how early that is. Maybe a month, maybe five weeks, somewhere in that time. Frame. Any way that I can spend less money on turning out voters, I am in favor of. <laughs> One uh, coming back to this perception uh, that uh, people have lost. Uh, in, in the integrity of the election process um, is, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. So in, in 2020, um, and this was still very much uh, obviously the COVID, COVID year, um, my wife and I were driving across um, the United States. We did a couple cross-country drives. And, and uh, so we were driving through much of the Southwest and the South, uh, maybe the Midwest. And the, the amount of visible support for Donald Trump was huge. Uh, every town we'd see billboards, we'd see people, you know, marching, you know, with, with their placards and everything. You'd see boat parades with huge Trump turnouts, uh, but nothing for Joe Biden. Um, and uh, a very silent uh, Biden support out there. Um, and then comes the 2020 election, and uh, you have Trump gets more votes than he did the first time, and you know the general rule traditionally has been that uh, if you get more votes when you're running for the second time, there's never been a president that's lost. Well, then he lost. Uh, but then you have these three or four states where he's leading, you know, and during the day during the election, and then during the night the votes start to shift. And and I think from from my perspective, you know, you know, this seems kind of surprising to people, and maybe this contributes to the general loss of faith. In, 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 in the system. But, but, but I guess the, the you know, two things, one, the, the, uh, on one hand, we're talking about the traditional measures of, uh, of the election process uh, that we draw from a couple hundred years of, a, of, a, of, of experience versus 
Uh, we had very unusual circumstances because of COVID. Uh, we had an unusual President uh, Trump at that time and a very unusual campaign being run by Joe Biden, which basically was to campaign by not campaigning to a large extent. Um, but your, your thoughts on, on uh, what impact this may have on the perception that people have in the fairness of the election process? Yeah, so you and I aren't strangers to this, right? This was essentially Jerry Brown's 2010 uh, election strategy. And you had Meg Whitman, who is traveling up and down the state and engaged all over the state, and Jerry Brown, who basically stayed inside his bunker during that entire campaign. And the strategy was there was nothing that he could do to help, and the numbers were there as long as he didn't hurt himself. I think that was President Biden's strategy as well. There wasn't anything that he could go out and do to help him get more, but he could definitely hurt his, his campaign and his chances if he was out there doing things. So they took a gamble that that would be enough to get them across the finish line. And I think, you know, obviously the gamble for them worked. I do think that for individuals, it's very difficult. And we also, also get into our own little bubbles. I remember in 2004, my husband and I were driving to an election night party. It was about nine o'clock at night. And, you know, they're calling, uh, you know, they're talking about Ohio and what's going to happen in Ohio. And I was just like, I just feel like the support's so much more there this time around. Like, I would, I, I just can't even imagine a world where President Bush isn't reelected. And, you know, my husband, who works in education, he was like, you are so far in the bubble. Of course you can't see around that. He was like, I can tell you, there is a very real possibility that he doesn't get reelected tonight. Um, and of course, thankfully, he did. But I think sometimes we get in that bubble and it's it's helpful to get outside of it, right? Can you imagine if your, uh, your road trip took you through the northeastern part of our country? It might be very different than driving through those southern states uh, of the United States. You know, it's a very interesting comment about the, bu the bubble um, a comment. Uh, it occurred to me that we maybe that's a basic problem that we have now in this country and hence the challenge to our maintaining faith in the integrity of the processes because we're all in a bubble that we can attribute to a large extent to these algorithms. So so every, every time we're, we're getting on uh, the internet, uh, the internet pays attention to an article we read last week and therefore we get fed more of the same. And we get to the point where all we're doing is having the prior articles reinforced, reinforced, regardless of what end of the political spectrum you're on. So if you're to the far left, all you're hearing is about the far left stuff, and people can understand how people on the they can understand how people on the right think that way. Therefore, they must be bad or evil or wrong or whatever. And it goes the other way too. Um, how do we, is there any way to address that issue? Well, I think it's the dehumanization, right? And it's important for us to continue to have conversations, in my opinion, in a respectful and compassionate way with people who have different values and viewpoints than we do. And I think that we have gotten to a place where so much of it is spent on time uh, online, whether it's Twitter or your Instagram feed. And again, you have this algorithm that's being fed to you. 
And so I think it's very important to sometimes put that stuff down and continue to have conversations, real life conversations with people that may not always agree with you, but can be respectful while you do it. There are some philosophers out there from ancient times, I think would uh, be very happy to hear what you just said. Because <laughs> I, I, I think uh, the theory is that the problem with, uh, with how, how do you address a bad idea uh, is another idea, meaning if you don't like the speech, the solution is not to su- suppress that speech, but is more speech, which, which we seem to be getting away from that in this country. Uh, there seems to be uh, a significant uh, loss of faith in the First Amendment. Uh, you hear people talking about how it's uh, irrelevant or maybe it's being used ir- improperly. Uh, any, any thoughts on how that affects the election process? Yeah, I would say that, you know, I went from a, a very background place in, in politics to a foreground position. And I would say that, you know, in private, I was probably a little less considerate of my words. And in, in public, you know, I, I think I, I was always someone who is disciplined, so to speak. But I think that when you take time to think about the words that you're saying and making sure that it's not that they don't, you know, you want to make sure you're authentic and that they align with your values but also being understanding and compassionate that people have other viewpoints, I think that that goes a long way. And I think what we've seen is that it is too easy to be anonymous in a digital world. Mm. And so people can say things without consequence and other people can view that very publicly and think that it's okay. There are many things that are said online that people would never say to someone's face. And so oftentimes when I'm looking at something and, uh, you know, I I think to comment, um, I usually hold back and don't comment. (laughs) And then I think about, would you say that to this person's face? And I think that's one of the challenges that we're seeing um, in this new uh, digital world that we live in, newer. And, um, well, you know, it, it kind of brings to mind the, um, what, Section 230 of, of the uh, Communications Decency Act. And, uh, of course, it treats the online providers essentially as newspapers, uh, meaning that they have the First Amendment rights, um, and therefore they can eliminate voices they don't agree with. Uh, and, and, and that's being perceived by uh, certain people in the process as, as censorship and, and, and suppression. Um, and, and I think that a lot of people uh, to the right of the center, maybe even the center, look at it and say, why is it always the voices on the right of center that are getting suppressed? Um, and hence, contributing to the loss of faith, you know, faith in the system. Is there any thought on, rather than treating these online resources as being in the newspaper model, but instead look, uh, treating them as a public square. Like if you go to Hyde Park in London, right, they've got this, quote, speaker's corner. You can go the, famously for hundreds of years, you can go there and say anything you want to say, uh, and, and it's not going to be censored. Um, and any, any thought on, on, on whether or not we should start treating the internet sources as, as public squares as opposed to just traditional newspaper forums? Yeah, so I think that the issue that most Americans, and this is my opinion, has is that there seems to be two different tiers, right? Um, When you accuse someone of pushing misinformation and then it's found out a couple years later that, "Mm, in fact, they were right, 
we talked about the Hunter Biden laptop a little bit earlier, right? When people were talking about this, you know, we were told you're pushing out misinformation. We had a letter from 51 intelligence officers telling uh, individuals that this looks exactly like Russian disinformation. So I think what one of the policies needs to be is that there needs to be a fair and equal uh, dissemination of if this is, why is it always seem to be conservative speech that is being suppressed? And so I think that if people felt that the playing field was a little more equal, it would be a lot easier to have that free speech uh, truly be seen as free speech. Well, you know, even uh, here in California, uh, which the uh, legislature recently passed and the uh, governor signed into law, uh, a rule that uh, would censor uh, medical doctors if they gave, quote, misinformation about COVID. Um, and that I think the that particular law has been stayed, the enforcement has been stayed by uh, the federal district court in, in, in Sacramento uh, for, for the time being on vagueness grounds and that kind of thing. But I, I was just thinking that, you know, if you had that kind of suppression of dissenting medical opinion, uh, we may very well in, in the year 2023 still be putting leeches on people who have an infection the way that George Washington had because you never have a chance to grow and, and develop. And there's a you know significant part of, of, of the medical community that uh, disagrees with that because they say, first of all, uh, what is consensus? Uh, if you don't always have a consensus, you're never gonna grow and uh, come to a greater understanding of the more subtle issues. But they also say that why why have that law? Because if we're giving misinformation, there's protections already in place. We can be sued for malpractice, that, that kind of thing. But the thing that's shocking to me is why even pass the law? Right. Um, and, and, and so what, what's going on? What, what, what is it that uh, people feel that they can actually try to suppress this kind of speech? It's those radical regressive policies that we talked about, right? This is an absolute disservice to our medical community, our scientific community, and by extension, the people of California and the rest of the country. We have been at the forefront uh, when it comes to so many of our medical advancements. And to not be in a position where you can look at the data and talk about where you think the data is pointing, what a disservice to the medical community and Americans at large when they do something like this. Um. Yeah, well, that's just very fascinating. Well, you know, it, it, it seems to me that um, people feel much more at liberty to suppress. And I always was raised on a principle, uh, and I suspect you probably were as well, and it's probably very old-fashioned in many people's point of view now. But I may not agree with what you say, but I will fight for your right to say it. Uh, and uh, are, are we still in that world, or, or uh, have we passed that now? And and do we not have that same sentiment in this country? Yeah, so my version of suppressing speech that I don't like is turning off the channel, right? If I am not interested in what you have to say, then I am not going to listen to it. And so I think that we are not necessarily in that same place. I think most people can get to that place, um, but for some, and I, I do believe that it's a, a small minority, it is more important for them to make sure that those words are never said versus turning it off.
and not giving an audience? I, um, when I'm feeling energetic, um, I will go on a six or seven mile walk, a little run, mostly walk, with a friend who's very left of center. Um, and it's one of the most entertaining uh, Sunday mornings uh, that, that I have because uh, he'll make a proposition and I'll respond and we go back and forth. It kind of reminded me of this uh, when I took my younger son to begin at Boston College. The, uh, there was a wonderful professor who talked about having, quote, intellectual conversations, whatever that means. And he said the hallmark of an intellectual conversation is someone says, uh, so on and so on, and the other person say, yes, but, and then has the exception, and then the person on the other side, well, mm, yes, but, and they go back and forth, you know, and it's a little bit like a tennis match, as opposed to just saying, and shutting down and say, I, I don't want to listen to that, uh, you know, and, and, and so this is part of the educational process that we're interested in here, is that we like to encourage the yes, but, whether you're on the left of center or right of center, we need more people listening and I think you agree with this very strongly and wholeheartedly, is that we need to have people say yes, but, and we go back and forth, and we all get better for the process, I believe. And the best part of doing it the way you do it is when you're done, you can just run a little faster. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I can do that, I can do that. I, I can probably eke out a very small victory. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, uh, in, in terms of the voter, let kind of just expand this. Just, just a bit, and, and this is on the issue of uh, who do you trust, right? So uh, a few years ago, uh, Adam Schiff, uh, you know, the, the congressman you know, from the L.A. area who's heading up the House, I guess it was the Intelligence uh, Committee, who was coming out of these closed-door sessions and said there's absolute proof of Russian collusion, Russian collusion. And, uh, and I said, well, one, well amazing. Uh, well, where is it? And, and of course, you know, it's all behind closed door, it never comes out. Now the Durham report is out, right? Who basically said there was never any proper basis to launch a full-scale investigation to the so-called Russian collusion thing anyway. Uh, Schiff never retracts anything, uh, just keeps going on. Uh, and we poor Americans are left, regardless of whether you're left or right, who do we believe? Right. Um, and and, uh, and and you have all this information that's out there, and, and who, who, who do you believe? Uh, yeah. how, how do we correct that? So I think one of the things that was most significant during that period of time was having someone like Congressman Devin Nunes in the role of, of ranking member, right? Um, so he was out there and, you know, singing a very different tune from what Congressman Schiff was saying, and, and all of them, you know, being respectful of, of what they were seeing on intelligence because the intelligence committee gets more information than any of us do, right? It's important that we have consequences to these types of actions like we saw with Congressman Schiff, right? He lied about Russian collusion. He lied about the Hunter Biden laptop. We have now in place a speaker of the house who takes our intelligence community incredibly seriously. Adam Schiff politicized the Intelligence Committee. Him and along with Congressman Sawell up in the Bay Area, who was connected with a Communist Chinese Party spy, are not allowed to be on the Intelligence Committee. And that is because of the leadership of Speaker McCarthy. Now, any of the other Democrats have the ability to be on that committee? He said those two couldn't because of those uh, situations. 
I think it's really important that the American people, one, see the consequences to actions like that. Because if you're going to be spending time in Congress, and, and many of them do for a long time, right? We need to make sure that stuff like that doesn't happen. And when it does, there are consequences to it. But it's also important, and we're seeing this on multiple committees now that we have a Republican House majority. We have the opportunity to investigate the investigations mm. and get both sides of it, right? Um, and I think that that is something that we didn't see from Democrat Party leadership. It was incredibly political. And Speaker McCarthy, I, I truly believe, is going to be a transformative Speaker of the House. And, you know, just uh, last month, we had him up at the Reagan Library meeting with the president of Taiwan with a bipartisan select committee on China. This is critical. And to see, and, and, and they had the opportunity on both sides, Democrats and Republicans, to be able to uh, address the press. And all of them talked about being a united front when it came to the threat of the Chinese Communist Party. They did it with the backdrop of the Berlin Wall at the Reagan Library. It was absolutely amazing to watch, but this doesn't happen by accident. You know, Speaker McCarthy was very clear on how important this select committee on China was going to be. And he wanted to keep the numbers close on Democrat and Republican side. And so when he went to Leader Jeffries and said, let's talk about who's gonna be on this committee and let's make sure we're getting the best possible group because to the rest of the world, the United States has to be united when you're coming for us. And that's what they've done on this committee. And so having these investigative committees that we have, whether it's oversight or intelligence, where they can perform these investigations, I think it's gonna be important to the American people. So they feel like there A, are some consequences, but more importantly, we know the truth about what happened. That's what gives you confidence, is the transparency in all of it. The term consequences. Um, I believe that with uh, Schiff, uh, there's already been a, uh, a motion introduced into the House um, to disqualify him from his seat in the House. Uh, the odds are of it succeeding are probably negligible, I think, that in the entire history there's only been five people removed from their House, because the House can judge the qualifications of its own members, and I think three of those were Confederates, and they got disqualified <laughs> because they were holding arms, marching against the against the, the Union. union. Uh, so the two others were convicted of uh, criminal misconduct of various kinds. Um, uh, and, and of course now Schiff is running for Senate in California, I believe. Um, and so consequences. Um, what can we do? What kind of consequences uh, do you think uh, would have some teeth? Well, I think that we have the most powerful con consequences, and that's in our electoral process, right? Fortunately, our House members are running every two years. And so we have the opportunity that if you are doing something wrong, if what you are doing does not al align with our values, we have the opportunity to replace you. And that is greater than you know, many systems in the entire world. You know, uh, you know, focusing with, with this issue of education, we now live in a, have a world, uh, for lack of a better description, I call it the uh, seven second and swipe left world. <laughs> so you, you look at a headline. Very immediate. <laughs> and that's it. So, so, so many of us now are getting our news from a headline. 
and when you really pay close attention to the headliners and the headlines you're getting fed are the ones that reinforce whatever you've looked at last week or the month before and that kind of thing. But they're, they're very stylized headlines. Clickbait. Uh, and it's just clickbait. Uh, that's a challenge all in its own. How do we get people to do more than seven seconds and swipe, but instead click, but actually read down to the fifth paragraph to find out what's really going on in the subject of the article? Right. I think that you, know, as, as conservative uh, messengers, I think what we need to do is, you, we, you and I sitting here, we're getting down in the weeds. We're talking very detailed stuff. We have to also make sure that we've got something spicy to say that gets out there in seven seconds that gets their interest, right? So that's important too. Well, you know, on this uh, misinformation issue, uh, in the 2016 election cycle going back, uh, what, seven years uh, so now, and Donald Trump was talking about misinformation and, and so forth. And, you know, I was kind of slow to the party. So what, what is he talking about? And uh, so I said, well, look, I'm going to pay attention. So he was, this was still before the election. He's giving a uh, rally in Phoenix. And, and I listened closely. He said, you know, it doesn't make any difference what color you are, whether you're white, black, or brown. We're all Americans. I said, hmm, all right, well, that sounds pretty balanced and American to me. Next morning, I picked up the LA Times. It said, Trump gives racist speech in, in Phoenix. And I, and I said, now I understand what he's talking about. Um, so, you know, so many of us, you know, we're all busy with our lives, we're trying to pay our bills, we're trying to take care of our kids, and most of us just don't have time to really go behind that seven second and swipe motion. Yeah. And so if people just read the headline on the Times, which says Trump gives racist speech in Phoenix, people are going to say, Trump is racist. Uh, and it creates this huge divide. Um, and uh, maybe this is a process of just us becoming so busy and overwhelmed with various things and so many media choices, information uh, choices, uh, but it's a challenge. What's so interesting to me is that when, you know, big organizations like this, there's a lot of conversations about equity and inclusion in these newsrooms. You know what uh, affiliation is never discussed? party affiliation. They are perfectly okay with having, you know, 10 to 1 liberal to conservative uh, journalists or commentators within their news organizations. Um, but they're very concerned about, you know, how many black voices are heard, how many Latino voices are heard, how many female voices are heard. I'd like to see the same type of consideration given to ideology. Right, right. Well, that's, that's, that's a very good point. Is there any way that we can get there that you see? <laughs> I don't know about that. Because <laughs> it's uncomfortable to hear opposing opinions, I suppose, and, and uh, it, it challenges each of our thought processes and our beliefs and so on. But uh, is coming back to this yes but mentality uh it may be frustrating to hear the yes but the person who's doing the but and having a, an exception to your comment uh, but maybe we can all go home and uh cogitate it overnight and maybe tomorrow we we might be broader thinking person possibly yeah. or maybe just a little bit better person maybe understanding where other people are coming from maybe well, where do you see us going? Uh, this is uh, 2023. We've got, uh, we're going to be in another election cycle. Uh, well, we already are yeah. there, uh, but it really uh, officially is 2024. Uh, wh where do you see both in California and nationally? Yeah, so it's exciting for California Republicans. We have an early uh, primary this cycle. So we're on Super Tuesday, that first week in March. And so you're going to see 
candidates coming through our state, and generally speaking, we've seen over the years, we have candidates that usually come here on the presidential level to raise money. They'll still be doing that, but also they're gonna be building up their organizations because we're a delegate-rich state, and we are a winner-take-all by congressional district. So you can really rack up those delegates in the state of California by different parts of the state and still walk away with something. And um, so a statewide poll here may not mean as much as it would in a place that's winner take all by state. And you have the opportunity to see where your message works and how you can build out your organization. So that's great for California Republicans. But I also think that we're in a really wonderful position on the national level when it comes to the presidency. We have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to our presidential candidates. Mm-hmm. And, Cal- and, and Democrats across the country are stuck with a guy whose approval rating's around 36%. I think it's a great place. He's gonna have to campaign, and President Biden's gonna have to campaign in a way he didn't in 2020. And you know, when you're putting a lid on things at three o'clock in the afternoon on a regular workday, I mean, I really look forward to what our nominee will be doing while he's taking a nap in the afternoon. Well, that kind of makes me smile. I don't mean to break out laughing, but you, you hate to think that uh, the fellow that's uh, running the free world has to take a nap from three to five every day because some bad things can happen between three and five and we need a prompt uh, attention to it. But. Um, do you think that uh, he's serious about running? Is there something that's uh, going to cause him to backtrack on that announcement between now and sometime in 2024? If I were giving odds on it, I would say there's a 75% chance that he runs for this race or for this for re-election. So, and then switch the focus on just he, he's going to have challenges, primary challenges. Uh, what do, what do you think the odds are of him actually fighting those challenges back? I think he should be fine. So you think he'll get the nomination? Yeah. So, okay. Predictions on the Republican side? I think it's too soon to tell, (laughs) but I'm excited. I'm really excited. Whether you're looking at, you know, President Trump, who we all saw what his policies looked like, right? We were thriving as a country under his policies. You've got Governor DeSantis, who's obviously being rumored. I think we'll probably see something pretty quickly from him. I've heard some super pack noise on uh, his particular race. He's done a phenomenal job in Florida. We've got our governor here in California who's trying to like punch up to him. And, you know, Governor DeSantis isn't taking the bait. You know, Governor DeSantis is saying thank you because so many Californians are moving to my state because they want to see what freedom looks like. You've got uh, uh, Ambassador Nikki Haley, who has been a leader on the world stage and also an executive in South Carolina. You've got uh, Senator Scott, who has been a trailblazer in the U.S. Senate. Um, just an absolute embarrassment of riches when it comes to Republicans. And I'm excited to watch this, but I do think it's too soon to tell. So who's declared on the Republican side so far? Yes. Yeah, so we've got former President Trump, You've got uh, former U.S. Ambassador Nikki Haley. You've got the former governor uh, of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson. Uh, You've got uh, Vivek Raswamy. I hope I'm saying that right. I always feel bad that I don't get it exactly (laughs) right. And I think that might be it right now. I know uh, Senator Scott has announced his exploratory committee. Um, So that's basically in, right? Um, So a lot of great individuals. 
So we have a lot to look forward to in 2024. Yes, absolutely. It sounds like you're going to be extremely busy. I already am. <laughs> well, listen, Jessica, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. And it's been a wonderful conversation. I hope to have you back again soon. I would love that, Roger. Thank you for having me. You're welcome.